Hello. Welcome to my art form. It's time for Post Orthodoxy, a show about changing our minds. Yeah, baby. With your host, Dark and Ainsley Sevier. Maybe what they believe about reality isn't all of reality. What? I know, right? We are on a mission to have a better time with more people more often. The question is more like, how do you get there? Post-Orthodoxy explores strongly held beliefs, how those belief systems divide or connect people, and what might be found beyond those reality bubbles. Keep calm. Don't lose your head. I've got a piece of chocolate here with me because i got anxiety about doing this. Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. Yes, indeed. Welcome to Post-Orthodoxy. Welcome to the Outpost in the Borderlands. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. This is episode five of season three. Who knew? All right. And it's actually our fourth and a half season of making um, shows and having conversations with you guys together. Dark and I started out on KBMF with copacetic conversations with our uh, beloved co-host Mokai Malobe, having difficult conversations uh, productive conversations about difficult subjects, and now we're doing post-orthodoxy. And the the modus and the mission behind post-orthodoxy modulates every season as we become more trauma informed and um, and and smarter as we learn and grow with you guys, our community. Uh, and for me, post-orthodoxy season three, I really have been defining to people um, as um, the our mission is to reduce harm, alleviate suffering, and build community through challenging dogmatic thinking because anything where we uh, we think that something can't be questioned or we don't understand each other is a place where we can't have compassion for each other or or be together as neighbors. Yeah. You, you want- like to challenge the dogmas. <laughs> Introduction of reasonable doubt has been sort of the, 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 bu- the theme that keeps bubbling up to the surface. Um, I think the personal reason that I do this show is because I'm trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. <laughs> and I and do. And you can too. And you can too. So um, I would like to remind people that I am not here to prescribe perspectives. We're or not to, doctors or therapists. Or to claim to know what is going on. I am only here to demonstrate my ongoing journey to figure out what the fuck is going on. Um, so what I, I like to do in this show is introduce introduced reasonable doubt which can be very alarming into um accepted narratives widely in accepted narratives such as there's only one god of the entire universe and his name is god of the bible only one yes uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of narratives going on that people think are the one and only way and i like to poke at them that's nothing <laughs> personal against the people that like them we poke at those things because we found out at young points in our lives that we'd been lied to by people we care about. And we had to go through an alarming transformation to come to a place where we can just free float in the universe of beliefs and not feel like we have to put our ship into harbor in any one belief system to feel safe. Um, and so we have this, Dark came up with the term enhanced immunity to bullshit. Enhanced natural immunity Enhanced natural to immunity to bullshit. Yes. And that's... that's um, that's a skill that we'd like to bring to bear in these conversations with you guys. So thank you to, so much to the regulars. Thank you ahead of time to the lurkers and the people that are going to watch later yeah. on. I found out about a couple more people this week who tune into post-Orthodoxy, and I never knew that they did. And it really warms our hearts every time we find that out. Yeah, we got a lot of lurkers out there we appreciate. And a lot of people who watch the show after the fact. So, Or like secretly watch it without clicking on it so that like the algorithm doesn't know that they're watching our content. I would like to say hello to the future people. 
And folks that'll find us on Spotify, Amazon, iTunes, Google, and all other podcast overlords yeah. after the fact. Uh, a lot of people have been getting involved in the dialogue through the chat bot that our media maven has provided for the show. Um, some people have things to say, but don't always want to out themselves as the people saying the thing. You can so send us a private message and we'll keep you confidential. Yeah, you can be just called friend of the show or... Frenemy of the show. Or a frenemy of the show, depending. Please designate and with, with your question how you want to be addressed if you don't want to make a public comment. And so, so now today we have a very special guest, a long-term friend of the show, if I may yes. be so bold. Yes. Um, and, um, and I hope that he feels that we have been a friend of his the show of his life. Yeah. Um, Mark French, ladies and gentlemen, is an all around interesting person to me. Um, I got to know him as a chef, but apparently he also does like finances and real estate and has traveled the world and cares about the environment and um, has been doing this really amazing thing for us over the past couple of seasons where he'll do a video response to our live streams. And like, oh, it's been so great. He has all these smart books behind him on a shelf and, and just like lists off all this smart stuff in response to what we've been talking about. Like, I need a second me or a time turner or something so that I can um, have time to explore all the references, explore all of these dropped. references. That, yeah. um, and so without further ado, uh, Mark French, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Post-Orthodoxy, Mark. Live from Houston, Texas. Is that right? Uh, Fort Worth has been my primary Oh, Fort resident. Worth. Okay, but yeah. Texas. Texas. Yeah, Texas, yes. Thanks for joining the show today. Oh, so excited. It's always... Um, we always have a fantastic time talking to each other and how cool uh, to invite the public this time. That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then this time it's not you chatting at us in the chat bot. Uh, we get to actually hear your voice and see your face and yeah. hear what you think about what's going on. Uh, the organic exchange I anticipate is going to be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to talk. I know you, I mean, yeah, Just go ahead. Viewing things at you for a half hour or 45 minutes doesn't feel as cool as it would just talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we're going to have some, there's always some issues with Zoom where sometimes you might not hear us start talking until we've already started talking. So we're just going to agree ahead of time. We're not going to be mad at each other if we get interrupted and I'll do my best to wait till you pause and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, Zoom always brings in a little bit of complications. Yeah, I'll treat it as an overseas phone call, Very and, good. Uh, and and I'll stop speaking <laughs> occasionally. And, and, yeah, <laughs> sure. Uh, I I did. Uh, you are going to make a heroic effort to drive from uh, the south for the weekend to come up and do the show uh, and replace our lovely uh, co-host S here. Uh, yes. and, and I really appreciated the effort. Can, can you tell me what happened? What, hap what happened in your attempt to make it to the frozen north? Well, for people that um, didn't hear about it at all, uh, <laughs> there was a preposterously huge storm that went from like the bottom of Wyoming and the top of Colorado all the way down. Moisture was coming up from Houston and the Gulf and mixing with cold air. So basically, every single state that I had to drive through to get there got totally ice blizzard wiped out. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and Southerners don't handle it very well because they're just not used to it. Do you so think of yourself as a Southerner? I no, not me. I'm from Detroit, but I do. But I do live here, and I've had to. You know, I've been living or working in Texas for 12 years now. Um, 
on and off. And and every time snow or ice happens, there's just cars flopped everywhere. Right. Other people don't know Other how to people. drive. Yeah. I always forget about that part because like I grew up driving on super curvy roads in the mountains and then all the snowy sure. stuff yeah. here. And so like I'm like, it's gonna be fine, but I have to remember other people will not be acting normally. It's the same thing with like the horrible rains in the Midwest. Like if you've never driven through a giant thunderstorm, you just start doing stupid stuff. Like, I don't know how cars work on the road. Like (laughs) just, just maintain. It's going to be fine. (laughs) It's going to be fine. Yeah. It's uh, and, and that's really what happened. I didn't mind it. It was going to delay my arrival a few hours. Whoop-de-doo. No big deal. Um, but I, I did not want to get waxed by somebody else. Yeah. So no. I just, I just, uh, so I just turned around and, and we'll have to do it again next time. My, when I lived in Los Angeles, I made the choice to never drive when it rains if it hasn't rained in a long time, which happens a lot in L.A. Mm. Because of all the oil on the roads, it is like oh, yeah. all the roads are covered with ice and people mm-hmm. in L.A. don't know how to drive on either one. So people just go flying off on ramps all the time at 80 miles oh, an hour. So like when it rains in L.A., I'm just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the people scrub that off the oil with their blood and tears uh, before <laughs> I take the road again. Yeah. <laughs> so welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invite. And it's so, so cool. Looking forward to whatever comes up. Well, we have so many things that we've been thinking about. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I've been thinking about, uh, God, there's so many topics that I want to talk about. Um, my project, I've been, my project over the last week is I've been um, pinging people for resources about the Jewish Holocaust and the climate and events that led up to it. Just so that, because all I know is like the the mainstream history book, what you see of Hitler on movies and things like that. And then some really horrible shit happened to the Jews. Um, and I want to know, like, how did neighbors decide to do that to each other? Because I'm sort of afraid it's happening again, but I don't want to just be blurting that out and have people think I'm being insensitive or stupid. I blurted it out and people think I'm being insensitive and stupid. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I mean, when... You know, dead people always bum shit out, right? So when there's millions and millions of dead people, right. you know, people people get really, really bummed out really quickly. Um, I I was unable to answer anything that you were curious about because I'm completely ignorant to it. In so much as I've really, um, just like you said, uh, the 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 books in in school when you're a kid that you absolutely have to go through. And then because of my career, I looked at the economic side of those situations that could cause so much strain in a country that they would begin looking for someone to scapegoat. So there's, yes. you know, yeah, so that, that's, uh, that, that's been the extent of my delving into it thus far. Yeah, it seems like they didn't they didn't find somebody to scapegoat. They were prescribed somebody to scapegoat is what it feels like from my understanding of the story. It's very interesting even just in like primordial scratchings over the last week. It seems as though Germany was in an economic shit show. Yeah, he can tell yeah. us about that. And it was Yeah, and then the government, people in the government were like, "Look guys, these are the folks that are causing the economic problems." And then Hitler came along and he, he hated um, non-whites for a different reason. And he sort of jumped on that train and had everybody hating each other um, for his own like secret nefarious reasons. 
And that is what culminated in people. I had no idea that the citizens of Germany had democratically voted for Hitler to leave the, lead the country. I had no idea that they'd voted for Hitler to be president. They, they voted for called. fascism. Yeah, but they weren't. Yeah. They didn't think they were voting for fascism. <laughs> they thought they were voting for a dynamic leader that was going to save them from an economic shitstorm. Well, and then not only that, but at the time, uh, the the professional managerial class and the bourgeoisie in Germany right now very closely resembles our current centrist neoliberal order so the so they were they were what our version of the centrist democrats would be here and the people just completely got fed up with them doing absolutely nothing for normal working people so it was a level of frustration it's not so much that they were voting for hitler they just needed anybody to come along to jolt things very similar to uh the trump election where it was just everybody was just so angry they were just like we this is the brick through the window to let these people know like we're pissed and we're right. not going to take it anymore uh michael moore before the before the 2016 election just before made a very he said and this is my my one of my favorite quotes from pre-2016 was Michael Moore said uh, Donald Trump is a Molotov cocktail being hurled at Washington. There you go. And I mean, and, and yeah. People, some and, people and liked him because he talked like them. Some people could give a damn about him, but they were mad because of what the DNC did with Bernie. They were mad as people uh, from, from the parties promising stuff they were never delivering on. And sure. they, they, you know, fool me once, fool me twice. It was just like, they're like, You've already, you know, we've already done the lesser of uh, two evils for our entire lifetimes. It's, uh, take this guy and tell me what happened. And, <laughs> yeah. and then I think some people became fans of two evils. <laughs> people, people became fans of him, I think, because he w was so disconcerting to the establishment class that everybody's fed up with. Yeah, sure, certainly. Well, and then, and then, and then the ultimate joke um, is, you know he ended up doing absolutely nothing but being a typical president. You know, his, right. his main accomplishment, um, his main accomplishment is giving away $2 trillion to the richest people on earth that don't really need it. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just, it just causes all this asset inflation in real estate and the market and it ends up uh, dripping down on to normal people. So it was just like free for all, all around for all, all of his buddies. I mean, you know, One rich of the, people the love way. him. And then, you know, poor working people in rural areas love him just because he's brash and he's mouthy. And that makes them feel like you know, like I, I want to have a beer and a burger with this dude. Right. I think one of the things that um, came up for me as I got more involved in politics, um, having once I got out of the church is like, okay, what are, what, what, what are Trump's actual ethics? What are Bernie's actual ethics? What are Biden's actual ethics? What have they voted for in the past? Where do they put their money? Who gives them money? And like sure. anytime one of my lip, my, my quote unquote new liberal friends, um, just over the last five or six years of being out of Republicanism, um, anytime one of them would bring up like how nasty Trump is and how horrible of a president he was, I'd be like, he, his, his voting and ethics and financial practices are exactly the same as Biden and Obama. 
Yeah. Except that Trump didn't start a war, and he's the first president in a very long time that didn't st- start a war. And that's not me, like, pumping Trump. That's just, like, guys, <laughs> like, if you – I know he doesn't talk like a nice person in a suit like you want him to. You know, you want him to, like, act like a president and talk like a president, and he's not. Sure. But in actual actions, he's n- he and Biden are not any different. Well, it's one beautiful thing that you and Dark bring up on the show all the time is Dark just said a few minutes ago um, that there's a lot of anger going around right now, and some of it right, rightfully so. So I don't think that's a, a healthy way to communicate with our friends and neighbors. But, I, I mean, going back and unspinning all of these lies and us getting hoodwinked over and over again by all of these snake oil salesmen. Mm. At what at, at what point are you going to throw your hands up? I mean, everybody everybody likes to go back a, of like, oh, boohoo, Trump is a meanie, and we can't have it. Like, let's ban <laughs> Twitter, and that's going to solve everything. I mean, we it's just so it. it's it's immature, right? So, like, but people don't want to deal with the real fact that. The last time we had a very bad recession to the tune where normal people took a 50 percent haircut uh, on all of their 401ks and life savings and everything. The 08 crash, Obama is the one that bungled that and and gave all of the money to the bank and Uh did absolutely nothing to help poor people. And that was absolutely disastrous. And then, and then, you know, so you have Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, uh, you know, some of the states that have been de- deindustrialized worse than almost anywhere in the country. All of those people voted for Obama twice. So now that they're pissed off, um, MSNBC just wants to call them racist all day long. And it's just so it's just preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's I, more. That'll make everything better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah if everyone's racist we don't have to actually do anything about it well that's a part of the otherizing you the, just get the to constant be mad at otherizing them. which is why i keep drawing parallels between i know that um the holocaust and the nazi era is a trope that gets used politically against anybody you disagree with politically i mean i know the left does it to the right the right does it to the left and i'm yeah. very sensitive um uh, the the point that I would want to want to make is I'm not talking about the Holocaust. The Holocaust was, according to the Wikipedia, 41 to 45. What I'm talking about is 33 to 41. Yeah, what created the conditions? What for created that. the conditions that made yeah. something like that something that happened at all? And yeah, c- can you can you maybe share with us a little bit about your understanding of the economic climate? Uh, when Hitler was coming to power and leading up to 41? Yeah, well, so World War One and World War Two are intrinsically connected. So at the, um, you know, at, at the end of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the murder of Franz Ferdinand, uh, my understanding is that there were very harsh reparations uh, placed upon the Germans. To, to pay everybody else back for that, um, that helped quash that situation. So the 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 English and the Mer- the American banks, the English and the French, and the European industrialists 
um, basically German Germans were given terms that were just so much austerity. There's no way they could have afforded it. So 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 hardworking, educated Germans are toiling all the live long day, basically to uh, make some of the American banks and the European uh, banks wealthy and richer. So people were getting rich off Germany. And, and it got to the point where it was just so harsh that they couldn't do it anymore. They, they tried um, printing their way out of the situation. Huh. Sounds um, familiar. It huh. caused, uh, so they just kept printing money and printing money and printing money. And because they didn't have a central bank that operated in the ways that ours currently does, it spiraled a little bit out of control and created hyperinflation. So men would literally get a break, a, a small lunch break uh, from work at the factory, they would be handed a sack of money and literally have to run it home to their wife because prices were doubling like every few hours. <laughs> right. Oh so, so you would be like running to grab a loaf of bread with a bag full of money. And it's so, so it just got completely out of, of control. Okay, and this is what we were talking to our guest, uh, Professor Fabio Vigi, about was, uh, and this is something I want to talk to you about. A on weirdly the show. similar thing has very, happened here over the last, oh, you know, two thousand. Yes. Yeah. Last, <laughs> last little bit. Yes. <laughs> um, the thing that I was interested in that that, that Professor Vigi brought home to me was, I think there's. People who are concerned about the state of the world, I think there's a tendency to go towards the idea of what can we do? How can we fix this? How do we call out the bad man? How do we do the emperor wears no clothes? How do we reveal to regular folks that they're, they're, they're getting conned? They're getting actively conned in a way that they could not get conned if they would just you know turn the tables. The problem is, is it's a hydra. There's no head. There's no one person you can make the bad guy. There's no one entity you can point to and say, that's where the source of the problem is. Um, and he sort of gave the, like, instead of trying to fix it or wondering what's going to happen, it was yeah. more like it's going to collapse, which has been the sort of ghost in the back of my head. It's going to, there's going to be a system collapse like everything natural. When things get untenable, the system yeah. will collapse on itself when it's no longer tenable. And I feel like that will be the end of whatever this economic fuckery is that's been going on for the last few hundred years, that it will just end of its own uh, corruption. And well, both how do we know what yeah. to look for in that? And uh -huh. I, I, I th also, like, later, as we progress in the show, I want to talk to you about maybe ideas for what sure. we could be doing instead of just waiting for the end. What kind of prep could be done for humans? How do we feel good about ourselves on the planet and as citizens yes. in the shadow of a declining empire? Sure. Of course. Yeah. And that's, um, and that's been the most salient point of the show. Um, it's, been, it's been so heartening. Um, for me, uh, personally and professionally, to hear conversations like this, because, you know, it, I don't have that feeling of being completely lost in the woods or out to sea. It's like, okay, there is hope. It's like all you beautiful people shine like little uh, shimmering stars throughout the galaxy. And I can grab a telescope every once in a while and be like, hey, they're out there. Like, this mm. is, um, but, but no, what you're saying is exactly right. 
when inequality gets this bad, the bad men, if you will, become blatantly obvious because there's so few of them. So there's, there's, uh, there's right around 2,800 people right now that have a preposterous amount of money. And the thing in the United States specifically is we've created a culture and society that glorifies and worships money, not, not, not the joy that people produce in society or how they got the money. It's just the money. Right. So the, the problem when you create a society around that is, you know, what you can call the Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk problem. I mean, you have Bezos, this glorified delivery boy, basically, and that's a worthwhile conversation to have. Like, <laughs> like, do we need to be ordering pointless plastic crap from China and wrapping it in more plastic and then putting it in cardboard just to be dropped off at our feet by a, a, a really poorly treated worker? I mean, I, I don't know. So, but, you know, you have, you have this idiot flying around subspace. And uncynically thinking everyone that shops at Amazon, you know, he has Amazon Web Services, so he's helping us getting spied on constantly. He buys the Washington Post mm. so he can basically editorialize his own public perception whenever he feels like it while he's riding around on a $500 million yacht. I mean, what, what good is this guy doing in the world? And then we're supposed to listen to morons like him tell us how this should get unspun. I mean, so that that's really where the show has been spot on uh, when these types of things come up. Because if we just wait for it to collapse and we don't start generating our own organic ideas of how to address that, it's going to make that interregnum period. And as the transition does start to happen, it's going to make it uglier and scarier and messier. Yes. Uh, you talk about the 2,800 uh, rich folk. And what we, what we were talking to Fabio about, which I wanted to talk to you about, is the people behind the rich folk, the architects of the system, where we get to see people like Bezos and go, grr, Bezos. <laughs> but that who's behind the structure where we have our obvious people? I think there's a lot of people who are billionaires and rich that we don't know. That we don't know about. Yes, um, there's like the- That don't sign up for the Forbes article. Right. There's a lot of power in the world. And they and, don't want you to know that they have all the power. right. I want to know if you can maybe help me understand. This is my constant quest is to help me understand when I hear terms like asset managers, it sounds so boring. It's, it makes me like start daydreaming in class instantly. When I hear about BlackRock and Vanguard, I hear the name a lot and I hear it in connotation as uh, the, the, the powers that are greater than governments. They're, they're, they're setting policy due to their, the sheer volume of the, the assets they manage. So when I hear asset manager and I hear BlackRock, I think I should be really, that should be the bad guy or something. But I don't really understand we what don't that is or what that means. And I'm constantly looking for some other perspective to help me understand what BlackRock is. And is it the problem or is it just exploiting a problem? And what is, you know, that's, 
more more importantly, what is BlackRock and what is Vanguard? What is an asset manager in terms of power in the world? Um, well, you just said it properly. Yes. Mm. I mean, um, some of these firms, BlackRock and Blackstone and Vanguard and other things of this nature, the assets that they manage are larger than most countries. Mm. Um, so, so you're, you're talking about some of these firms, you know, having micro economies is large as a country. <laughs> so it's, you know, you, so you, so you have someone, uh, like Zuckerberg or whatever that are literally allowed to dictate policy to many countries, um, because there's been this race to the bottom. So, so calling, money evil is kind of creepy and weird to some people they just don't get it so it's it's not that the activity in and of itself was intended to be nefarious but the way that we've constructed constructed it it has become that way mm. so it like the stock market 85 percent of it is owned by only the top 10% of shareholders. So when you hear libertarian or right side arguments that, uh, oh, the market's to be upheld at all costs, well, normal people don't even have money left laying around to participate in the stock market. And even the people that do have it a decent enough job to where they do have uh, a 401k or a Roth IRA or something, some kind of retirement benefit that is connected to the market. It's a very insignificant amount most of the time, generally. So, so the reason that the asset management class has gotten out of control because it's part of the fire sector. So finance, insurance, and real estate. Mm. So, so you kind of have these buildup of economies of death in the United States. So, so medical firms' stock will go up. That means more people are sick and dying. <laughs> so when, when the assets go up of these financial classes, that generally means they're stealing someone else's oil or aluminum or mining rights. or um, So the, the finance class specifically – does not participate in any industry. So we are in a time period right now where Americans' jobs are getting crappier and crappier and crappier. And it's because we're not producing anything worthwhile anymore. All, we're, we're all being asked to take these low-level service jobs. And it's because Rich people have realized it's easier getting rich, just slush funding money from account to account. They don't have to make anything. They don't have to hire anyone. So that's why there's been uh, this blow up in finance assets. It doesn't, they're allowed to mark up their own asset class on paper, but it provides no real economic activity. So, how long can that perpetuate? What does the end of that look like? Is there a way to just say, 
hey, you know, because you know this, you're articulating this. It seems to be the case. I haven't heard people refute that that's the situation that we're in, that there's a broken system that's being exploited and cheated and people are suffering and other people have this insane feedback loop of power and money that feels unnatural and unsustainable. So what does, how long can that, you know, I think I've been saying since 1992, how long can this go on for? No one really knows. And, and everybody and everybody that is aware of it um, is in full agreement that th- we are in uncharted waters. Mm. Um, pre-coronavirus, they were already, the Trump administration was already putting uh, a trillion dollars a day into the overnight federal funds rate. This this is the bank rate that large banks uh, use to loan money to each other so they can make that day's bet and be able to float it until they get the money back and they have to pay the call. Right. So they so so. And this was what was so interesting about the VG conversation, because coronavirus could have been the ruse that they needed to print all this cash to prop it back up and blow up another bubble because everybody was in agreement then. Um, I believe it was September or October of the, that year when it was 2019. Yes, that's right. So, so, so when it came out, how much money they were putting into the system secretly, the banks literally would have stopped loaning each other money. Like we would have had an immediate, correction and huge uh, drop in assets if that had occurred so i um we're we're in uncharted waters this time too uh kind of a page out of the obama playbook another thing that happened for the first time ever is the fed was putting printed or it's not printed it's all on the computer but the fed the fed was giving money directly to firms and that had never happened before. Mm. And that, and yet, that's something that we know. That's something we know happened. Yes. That's the thing that. What does directly to firms mean? They just transferred um, assets to one of the asset managers. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> what do those words mean? <laughs> the asset managers are the kings, they're the gods, they're the government. The government is doing what the asset managers say we need to do to keep the world from falling apart. The world is being held hostage by the management of the assets by the asset managers. Is that right? Yes. And here's, and here's a very, yes, that is right. And here's a very, there, here is a very practical example. Uh, when I was at Citigroup, which at the time was the largest bank in the world, uh, the, the head of the company was a guy named Bob Rubin. So Bob gave Barack Obama upon entering office, keep in mind that Obama had been given more uh, New York money than anyone in history of presidential races. So it was it was New York banks and firms that basically were the Obama campaign. So so Bob Rubin, the head of Citigroup, gave Barack Obama his list of appointments that he was to put on his staff. Oh geez. Obama, yeah. Obama took Bob Rubin's list. And every single one of them, 17 people on Bob Rubin's list, 
got put into Obama's administrative position. <laughs> I don't like <laughs> it. <laughs> I, it's, it's preposterous. I mean, and they just nakedly get away with it at this point. And then to, to bring it up to right now, um, you've, you've mentioned BlackRock, but Blackstone handed Biden his list of appointments and right. almost and almost all of those people were um, put into the administration. So it is very, very clear who is uh, creating these policies, why they're creating them, who they benefit, and around and around it goes. It's naked at this point. The emperor really has no clothes. Do you remember the story or are you aware of the story of like from when Reagan first became president and he was going to go ring the bell to open? Do you know that story? He was going to go ring the oh, bell. I, I, no, I saw it with my own two eyes. Yeah, he was going to. He was going to yeah. ring the bell to open the uh, stock market, and he was all being presidential. And the head of the stock market basically poked him and was like, "Ring the bell! Like, who's in charge Hurry here? Up. Right? Oh. Like, I'm sorry, you, business doesn't start until you ring the bell. Yeah, stop saying things. you're president, but this is king. So, yeah. and it was that moment on TV where everybody was like, "We've never seen presidents treated like that before." Yeah. And who was doing the treating? And now here we are. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, to, to, to take it back even further, at, at how long uh, the bankers and monopolists have been in, uh, in control, right before the New Deal, which created uh, the post-World War II building boom and the, the prosperity that all Americans romanticized, we all have. Mm. Uh, fond, fond memories of the 50s and 60s, right? That's like the golden age. Well, some of us do, yes. Yeah, right. Um, so certain so, classes. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but Big big Bill Haywood and the Wobblies um, were on strike in San Francisco. Uh, Roosevelt was on a battleship in the Bay of San Francisco being told to strike the strikers in San Francisco to put down a labor rebellion. We came that close from our military bombing our own citizens to put down a strike. Jeez. So that, I mean, that's really where it's at. People don't realize the United States has had the bloodiest labor wars and rebellions in modern history. I mean, there is literally talk about blood and sweat and tears just so we could get little 10-year-old kids out of sweatshops and not have to work 12-hour days, six days a week. I mean, this was fought and died over. Yeah. So the, the fact that we're just letting them unspin everything that we fought for for damn near 70 years, it's crazy to me. I can't, I can't believe people are pissed off in, in the street right now. It's unbelievable to me. It feels a little weird to me. We live in Butte, uh, which is called the Gibraltar of labor. It has a huge labor history. Frank Little is a labor legend. And, yeah. you know, I know people in labor and people who are politically affiliated in town will go go to his grave on, his, on the day he was murdered or his birthday. And they have all this ritual and this, around this religion around remembering Frank Little while doing absolutely nothing to honor the work that he did in the modern day. Mm. It's this weird yeah. fetishization. Well, no, that's, a, that's a very absolutist claim. Well, it, it's, it's, it feels to me like a fetishization of labor heroes the way that religions 
canonize things and make them bigger than they were. Let me and try I'm not saying that he wasn't that right. big. I'm saying they're doing very little to honor the, the, the work that the person was doing. Well, let me try and put it another way yeah, that will maybe be way. not so defensive making. Um, it seems as though <laughs> it seems as though our friends in many of our friends in unions um, who do specifically ritualize and honor Frank Little um, perhaps have the perspective that we don't still need to be getting dragged through the streets behind police horses. Mm. And so they're not doing the level of work that would cause them to be ostracized and beaten and shamed and defamed and killed because they think that that has already been achieved that happened. by their heroes, such as Frank Little. And, and I think that's maybe, maybe that's more of a benign way of looking at the perspective of our friends in these groups where we're like, we feel like there's still shit that needs to be done. And that if you're not getting kicked off the school bus or out of the lunch counter or um, out of your job, you're probably not actually making a difference. But there are people, it seems like, who feel as though the Frank Littles and the Rosa Parks saved us already happened and we're in a better place now. And this is where we have this issue where um, it bleeds into the coronavirus censorship where, well, that's just one person saying things and they really shouldn't say things. And so people on the left keep shutting down this one voice that's problematic and this one voice that's problematic without, I think, realizing the parallels between people who are standing up, sticking out, getting defamed, getting shut down and canceled, and people like Rosa Parks and like Martin Luther King and like Frank Little and like that girl that stood up in the sweatshop and jumped on the table and yeah. started a union riot. Like, yeah. like Norma Ray. Norma Ray. Like yeah. we, still, we still have battles to fight and fighting the battle means that people are going to get brainwashed to dislike you. And so if no one dislikes you, you're probably not actually fighting the oligarchs. <laughs> I think maybe yeah. that's like a you're, broader way of saying. You're taking my point and moving it closer to where I wanted to go, Oh, which is how, yeah. what does that look like today? What does a Frank Little look like today? Right. Is it, what does that look like? And how do we, um, how do we, like I found this great high. I would love to show that video maybe sometime in the show because I think there's something really interesting. And in, it's a high school kid who is. Is it in your notes? It's in it's it's in the Twitter feed somewhere. Okay. It's I can down find there. It. But it's a high school kid who they were staging a walkout because of the mask mandate somewhere in Washington, I think. And so it's just this high school kid saying, "All right, we're done. We're over it. We're the seniors. You're the sophomores. The juniors. We're going to help you out if you get in trouble. But this is what we're going to do, and we're going to be respectful of the teachers because they didn't make the they didn't make the rules. But this is it. Youth rebellions are really exciting to me. That's where how many revolutions were youth rebellions, student started. rebellions, student rebellions. Um, and that's what I'm looking forward to. I, I really don't feel like it's going to be." Uh, it's definitely not the boomers that are going to be get, going out in the streets or do, taking the actions that in a meaningful way, because I, I think, again, they've romanticized what it is to rebel. And I think uh, there's a new rebellion that has to happen. And part of it is about people being able to understand what you were just saying a moment ago, which is what is the problem? Can we find it? Can we isolate it? Are there names involved? And if there's not names involved, are there institutions involved? To become aware of the problem, most people don't know how to rebel because they don't even understand what needs to be rebelled against. 
All right. What needs yeah. to be rebelled against? What meaningful actions can, and I'm just, I'm just shooting mm-hmm. the shit here. What okay. meaningful actions can be taken? I'm inspired by this kid. I'm interested in um, finding guests such as yourself that can you, help you me. Got it. Oh, she got it. Found okay, a button. Good. There was one more button I had to push. <laughs> yeah, play this. Play okay. this kid. Let's look at this. This is very inspiring. This is this is these are the people I want to be talking to. Everybody, shut up! This is not an excuse for any of you freshmen and sophomores to disrespect your teachers. If I hear of anybody disrespecting teachers or staff tomorrow. That makes us look bad. We want this to be a peaceful, respectful movement. We are just trying to gain back our rights as citizens. We do not care about the teachers in the end are just doing their jobs. It doesn't come from them. It comes from the state. Now, what we're hoping is that they kick us out. This sounds bad, but we're hoping that they kick us out because they have to report that tendence to the state. And if the state sees a day where 100 or I don't even know how many kids are here are absent, they're going to start asking questions. Our hope is, is we can get this statewide. Now, I might get in trouble for this, but the plan still stands for Wednesday. For tomorrow, I mean. Everybody is going to meet at the back row of the senior parking lot, and we're all walking into the school with no mask on. You can get me in trouble. They can suspend me. I don't care. We're done with this. And obviously all of you are too. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> Some guy yelling in the back. Obviously all you are are done with the mask too. Now again, we're doing this peacefully and respectfully. If a, st- if a staff member asks you to put a mask on, you say no thank you and keep walking. And if they kick you out, then go home. And if people need, ri- need rides home then some of the seniors, I'm sure we can start giving people rides home. Yeah. So before you respond, I do want to say this is not about being pro or anti-mask for me. This is about kids who have decided to take on powers when they feel like powers have gone too far. We can debate the science of the mask and not the mask, but that's not the issue for me. And I kind of like when he's saying, don't get mad at the teachers, it's the state. I look at the, this is a baby rebellion for what we're talking about because it's not the state. It's the, it's the system that has co-opted the state. It's not the bureaucrats and the people at the health department that are trying to kill you or, or save you or whatever the story is. It's not those, your pharmacist. Those people are just, that's just their job yeah. and their middle management. You know, it's like what they call the banality of evil. People who just go along with things because that's the way it goes. Like how do, like, Adults, do we just wait for the kids to work their way up from high school teachers to Blackstone and Blackrock? Or is there already something happening right now? I'm just fishing around. I'm just looking for like perspectives on like what kind of meaningful perspectives can we have about one of the most fucked up moments in history that I know of? Like, how do we find meaning in this moment so that we're not just arrested in awe of the fuckery? Any ideas? Yeah, well, yeah, well, no I mean, pressure. You, 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 <laughs> you, you just said it the right way, though. So just like that young man, big adjustments are not made without having the police and the bourgeoisie on your side. Mm. So it's so so when it comes to our friends and neighbors, it's about winning the hearts and minds of the police, the nurses 
the teacher, everybody that would be considered essential mm. at running a municipality. Mm. Because, because you're absolutely right. If we do try and do this, you already saw what happened at Standing Rock. You're going to get pepper sprayed. You're going to get drones. You're going to get sprayed with ice water. You're going to get attacked by dogs. And they're going to crack your head open. So American counter-cyclical spending, whenever there has been a big recession, American spending has always gone into hard power. So whenever the economy mm. is really, really unhealthy, we invest tons and tons of money into cops. So if you get grumpy about it and start whining, you're going to get your head split and locked up. And vilification is a very serious tool used in this country. It's not any different than the McCarthy Red Scare, where like literally junior high teachers were like getting dragged out of their classrooms just for having a different viewpoint on some things. Mm. So, so we are at a time where we cannot be childish and naive. We have to understand that it is okay to tell each other the truth and have different viewpoints. And that doesn't mean we have to yell and scream and cry and throw a tantrum on the floor like little kids. We have to be able to discuss some of these bigger things and, and decide where we're going with this. Because you are also right that it's not going to come from the boomers. You're talking about a class of people that own everything. So they got to go to Ivy League universities and Berkeley and some of the greatest universities in the world for like two grand a year. Mm. Now it's turned into an asset class. So our kids are leaving school with like $300,000 in debt. And we're not giving them good enough jobs to ever pay it back when they finish school. So it's like, so it's just about discussing in a mature and calm and meaningful way when we are going to write these assets down because normal people need debt relief and they need the most critical things to get ahead. They need education costs to be free or go way down. Americans spend so much money servicing debt. So if you just take the rent of a normal two-bedroom place in any city that normal people live in, <laughs> and you add in what they have to spend on insurance, what gas costs, because we all worship the car, right? You got to have a car, gas, insurance. You add just all the basic stuff up together, Americans literally have no money left over. I mean, free coronavirus. The bottom 50% in the United States was already only making $30,000 a year or less in the most debt-ridden society in human history. You can't live like that. You can't get married like that. You can't have children like that. So it's come to a head. So not everybody can just wait for the boomers to croak and turn all those assets over to uh, hedge funds right. or, or, there's, or there's spoiled kids that own the hedge fund. So, I mean, there's, there's, these things are going to have to be addressed in a meaningful way, and the protests must be peaceful. Uh, it's, it's a huge tactic for FBI and CIA to go into any kind of protest and kick up a row somehow, smash a window, do whatever, so then the police can use corporal force 
and start beating people up and arresting them. That's so, why I think the protest is a, it's a relic of history. It's not effective anymore. It feels like, um, it feels like, you know, masturbating to the idea of what you're doing. It's, are you you're plagiarizing not, my idea from the bar last night? I think we should get into that idea because you're, that's a, that feels like a, what do they call that controlled opposition? It is a prescribed response that lets off steam, but nothing changes. And we're starting to learn that those, that's the way the stuff works down. You either get your head cracked or um, it just blew off steam so that no real change was ever in, enacted because people's anger was expressed for a moment in a safe way. So they didn't actually um, harden into real action like against they said, what yeah. they find is the problem. Like they said after the, the 1%, the 99% rallies, they were like, you've made your point. That's what the news was saying. Like, you've made yeah. your point. You can go home. Like, you've made your point. That's what they're saying to the truckers in the freedom rallies all over the planet okay, right now. Okay, you made your point. Is they're like, well, we've heard you. Can you just open the highways again? They're like, no, no. You haven't heard us until there's change. You mm -hmm. have not heard what we are here to say until there is change. Yes, I and I agree with you, too, on that point completely. I only brought up the peaceful protest yeah. uh, thing because I do think it's important that we have to start treating this like a general strike. We seriously mm. have to start using like BDS movement taxes. Uh, taxes. Okay, when you say BDS, do you mean BDSM? Like bondage, no, dominance, no, submission, no. and masochism? <laughs> Uh, no, BDS as in boycott, divestment, and I forget what the Okay, is, I can but, look that up but, then, if it's not. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I'll, I mean, I'll so, look up BDSM also, but yeah. I just didn't know what you meant by those tactics. <laughs> no, I, I generally meant, like, we have to hit them where it hurts, and that's their money. I mean, general strikes and people with exorbitant debt, I wouldn't pay my debt. I would have mass movements where everyone just stops paying their debt. Yeah, like the rent strikes a couple of years ago. Well, you said that that necessi necessi necessitates us talking to each other and articulating mm -hmm. the problem. I don't see this problem being articulated. I see it because it's in my feed. It's in my bubble. It's in my algorithm. I look mm -hmm. for this kind of information. A lot of people don't know that this is information even to be looked for. Sure. So to have a, a way to bring the narrative forward that, okay, you know, there is, uh, we've gotten used to not being able to buy a house or have kids or have a car. We've, we've really just acclimated to living um, uh, a harder time than our parents did as, as mm -hmm. an entire society. We've just acclimated to it. Um, yeah. And I feel like so much of the, the, um, the censorship that is going on, I don't feel like this is random. I feel like the censorship is going on not to keep us from talking, but because we yeah. are talking. Yeah, sure. The things are, they say, you, you know, you only get flack when you're over the target. If you look at what's going on with Joe Rogan, like he has become the new cycle of the last week in my algorithm. Sure. Because it's about, um, and I want to ask you, I think a line was crossed because of the Joe Rogan thing this week where the Surgeon General and uh, the White House spokesperson said that as government representatives that they wanted Spotify to be more heavy-handed in censoring people. They didn't say, they didn't yeah. use those words, but that's what they're saying. They say, we want yeah. you, private corporation, to censor unpopular thought. 
That's different because I've been walking that line for a long time between, well, it's the terms of service. And if you're going to use the thing, then you got to go with the terms of service. Terms of service, yes. The First Amendment is over here where you can talk on the street and blah, blah, blah. But when the government tells private industry to start limiting thought, don't you feel like that's – how do you feel about that? Well, okay, so Chauncey has a quote, and whether you agree with Chauncey on most things or you don't, that's not the point. But Chauncey says the legitimacy – of any regime and established order can be decided by the amount of propaganda needed to uphold it. Mm. Ooh. So what, Ooh, say that again. Yeah, say, say that again. Say, say it again. again. Preach. Okay. Yes. So the, the, the legitimacy of any hierarchy and established order, you can judge it by the amount of propaganda needed to uphold it. So, so look at how what a clown show this Biden administration has turned into and how we are all being treated like children. Mm. So he's trying to kick up a row over in Ukraine over a gas pipeline because they want to reinflate the American fracking bubble and send all that dirty, toxic Canadian tar sand and refine it here and frack here. And they want to turn it into liquefied natural gas. And they want to sell it to the Europeans at a huge markup because obviously it's harder to get our gas over on container ships, right. sending halfway around the world when when Germany can just have one pipeline of directly from Russia right. and it can satisfy the current European energy order. This is why so, we so, keep going to war in that part of the country, right? As far as I understand, yeah, is to keep the Germans yeah, from having a pipeline. Yeah. <laughs> like for a hundred years. <laughs> So, but 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 none of these people will address anything in a grown-up, truthful, serious manner. What do we get? Culture war and identity politics, yeah. and and they're not even able to handle the slightest critique whatsoever, regardless of what you think about Rogan and how bad people try and slander this guy, who I think has some silly ideas, but for the most part. He's a very smart man that's open-minded and very fair to people. He's just having an honest conversation. So, so uh, like Kamala Harris trying to get Trump permanently banned from Twitter, and now uh, you have Jen Psaki, one of the most blatant, vulgar liars in human history, <laughs> like just on TV 24 hours a day, Just they're just complete liars and spin doctors. For them to not for them to even put Spotify into the American lexicon, and then the financial side of it, I find very salacious and creepy too. <laughs> Neil Young and, and Joni Mitchell <laughs> oh and a my lot gosh. of the other Spotify artists, they their entire catalogs were just bought by Blackstone and some of the other New York hedge funds. So they were it wasn't just trying- Neil Young's; it was it was the other players as well. Yeah, they were they bought by the had- same. Asset company. Oh my god! <laughs> it's just propaganda. So it's all just propaganda. It's just all brainwashing, constant brainwashing. And not not only that, but they're they're trying to tank the stock of Spotify uh. to either to either absorb it or collapse it because right. they own because they, they want to make their own new Spotify and they're getting in the way and control what the people get. That's what I think. That's like whatever you think about Joe Rogan. It is this. It, it's, uh, 
censorship often has the exact opposite intended effect. And this is what happened in, in to draw a conclusion back to pre-World War II, is the, the propaganda that they were using was short-lived. It was not a sustainable propaganda campaign, but it was super powerful in the short term. But it was yeah. not going to be, it was not going to stand up to scrutiny over time. Eventually, there would be some accountability for somebody and the jig would be up. The spell would be broken. The story, because they're living in a planet and they didn't know where they were on the planet until the rest of the planet finally told them. And I feel like this is where the West is right now, is that we've become unmoored. We're adrift. I don't think we have any direction. I don't know how we're still afloat. I don't know how we're not running to the store with a bag of money to go buy bread. I don't know how we're not there yet. I'm always impressed. Like, I have to look at it from an engineering perspective, a social perspective. The fact that we're not doing that right now is impressive. But it doesn't feel... I, I, I think I'm becoming addicted to Twitter because I really... I think being, being raised in an apocalyptic cult, I'm constantly looking for signs of the end times. Because it feels like well, every day we're just that much closer. And I don't want to have that mindset. Yeah, I want to be doing well, something instead of just uh, sky is falling. Ing. Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, I mean, all of us get tricked and mesmerized um, that we're going to get invited to the country club someday, right? Like right. that is that is the big American lie. Like Canadians have had more social mobility over the last forty years than we have. The American dream is now Canadian. Right. So, right. Um, <laughs> so, but. It, but that, but that's always the thing. That's that's how they uh, put us into this Schadenfreude situation, and they always make us feel like it's our own fault. Like if you if you aren't a multimillionaire, what are you doing with your time? Like so so they blame the millennials for drinking too much Starbucks and eating avocado toast, and, it, and it's just preposterous. So you have a situation where wages of normal people have been flat. And, and I think this is what will make it easy for most people, like you said, that don't pay attention to these things because it isn't their professional vocation. They have no time to think about this stuff and they find it very boring. But regardless of the education level or lack thereof of, uh, you know, our own countrymen, the fact is... Americans can smell bullshit from a mile away. <laughs> so they are very sharp. You got to wake up pretty early in the morning to get one over on somebody. So I think as long as we're framing it as like when you look at the study of the Rand Corporation that was mm. done in October 18, it very clearly shows where D where globalization and D industrialization begins uh, in the late 60s and into the 70s, and it blew up and came to a head during the Carter administration, mm -hmm. it shows a direct transfer of wealth of $39 trillion. That is from working people to the 1%. And there it is. So um, I, I just think if we frame it in a way like, hey, we got played... These these are the reality, math, and numbers around it. It is within our control to start to address some of these things. 
So, um, yeah, you. Yeah. So we were at the bar last yeah, night. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. Yes. Yeah. So this was very exciting. This is one of the moments where your heart starts racing because you're like, oh my gosh, I think this is like a new thought. It's so <laughs> cool. You know, you're not just like cobbling together the thoughts that you've absorbed from other people, which right. is also thinking um, <laughs> and valid. Um, but uh, we were, we've been. We've been drinking kombuchas at our favorite bar because we were kind of going down this pathway of like, we want to socialize and discourse with people. And like the only way to do that is to In go Butte. out yeah. to a bar at night, especially yeah. because you're not allowed to get to gather in groups in homes, but you can totally go to a bar. Um, <laughs> so over the last couple of years, we've taken to going out more often and financially and health wise, it was just needed a break. So we've been, um, we've been drinking We've been going out and having kombuchas and CBD seltzers and things like that. Um, and we were sitting at the bar and Dark's like shaking his fist at the sky and talking about how Fabio <laughs> said that, it, you know, if the bad guys are this many headed Hydra. We have a decentralized bad guy. Um, and he's like, how are we going to come together? And it was these words that like <coughs> ticked my brain, like, Pow! how are we going to come together to fight a decentralized bad guy? And I was like, well, you don't. Maybe you don't. Maybe this age old and beloved concept of everyone coming, coming together, together and yeah. unifying. This has been my issue over the last couple of years. Dark and I have been like, he's like, we're going to have a revolution. I'm like, yes, but how? Because everybody <laughs> has a different perspective on the universe. Right. They're using a different social media platform. They're having a different experience of what poverty means. Even if we were to get everybody on the same Facebook event at the same time, like you'd still be missing massive swaths of demographics all mm. over the planet. And everybody would be coming with different perspectives on what's happening because we're getting it from different news sources and different teachers and different friends and different social clubs. I was like, I don't think we can unify. And I've been saying that. And so like when we get into like our teeniest, tiniest fights, um, it's because <laughs> Dark thinks there's going to be this grand uprising. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't think the people can come together anymore in the same way in this technological age. And it really coalesced for me last night when he was like, how are we going to come together to fight a decentralized bad guy? And I was like, maybe we don't. This plays into a lot of what we've been talking about on season three. Resistance. One, season two, we were talking about the decentralized web and how we're going to get away from oligarchical control of our communications with each other and our banking between each other. And then two, in season three, we've been talking a lot about starting local. We need to get local. Like, stop caring about the sea turtles in Florida unless you live on the beach in Florida. Stop caring about the orphans in Bulgaria unless you have the ability to do something in Bulgaria besides sending money and sharing posts on Facebook because we're wasting our time and our energy and our assets helping people that we aren't actually able to make a giant impact with. But if we all focused on our lives, our well-being, our mental health, our physical health, the health of our loved ones, the mental well-being of our loved ones, the health of our community, the mental well-being of our community, what can you do for the starving children in your town? What can you do for the animals stuck in the animal shelter in your town? What can you do about drugs in your town? And if we all decentralized the revolution, I think maybe we might have something. And what does that look like, decentralizing it? Getting local. Like the inverse, the positive version of that word is localized. Uh-huh. 
rather than me being connected to the internet through oligarchical and centralized platforms that control my access and control my experience, I'm connected, I'm beginning to find ways to connect to the internet where I'm controlling the platform and I'm controlling mm. my experience of the platform and my presentation on the platform through new platforms beyond things like Facebook. And I think that's um, in the real world too, perhaps, workshopping it. Um, Deb was like, if we don't take to the streets, which is a double-edged sword, what then can we do? Right. And maybe... That's the question. Yeah. Like, we all grew up, for a little while at least, without the internet and cell phones. Yeah. Even me, you know? And, like, I didn't have a smartphone until I was 22. I didn't have access to, like, real Googling until I was in my late teens, mm -hmm. which meant I spent my formative years in a world where the way that you connected and centralized was in person, but maybe we're moving into how do we take these new familiars in the fey version of the word, in like the little animal that sits on the shoulder of the wizard and helps him with his quests. We have these new familiars that have largely been imprisoning us and directing us, and sometimes we're mad at them and sometimes we're guilty about them. But if I think of my phone as my familiar, how does it then become an empowering tool for me to decentralize the revolution rather than something that I feel like is just holding sway over me because I'm still sort of getting used to it on a primal level culturally yes i would like to add since you addressed me early about my ideas of getting everybody together i think for myself i've been trying to get away from the idea of getting people together and actually understanding the the impact of um shit i forgot where i was going oh wait god damn it sorry i'll get back to it what did um, you think of my rant yes like, I, I like the idea of reinventing the way that we're using our tech because this idea of the Web Web 3, the idea of, of, of getting back to uh, before net neutrality when it was still the Wild West and you didn't have paid ads showing up mm. at the top of your Google list before you got to any, you know, before all that stuff. Before getting algorithmic back, intervention. Getting back to that sort of more democratic thing mm -hmm. instead of... Instead of um, uh, monetizing or commercializing an information tool, it should be what do you, what do you call that? Public domain. What do you call that? Uh, Creative um, Commons. No, it's what we used to have public, public utility. Public, public utility. It should be. It should like in the modern world, it's a utility, and we just need to define it as such and decommercialize it somehow. What do you think about that idea, Mark French? Well, well, we absolutely have to because and to that's so how we're going to talk to each other. It's how we talk to each other. It is the public square. You have the White House calling for an end to free speech. I don't. Rem I don't remember voting for that. No. I don't remember Biden running on. Uh, we don't need the First Amendment anymore. So, so just make Joe Rogan disappear. Uh, let Julian Assange stay in prison and rot and die for not even doing anything wrong. I mean, so it's this. It. It is censorship of the public square right? with everyone supposedly holding the First Amendment so dear. And, and, and so to Ainsley's point about hyper-localization, I think that's so very important because those are the little things that are actually seen and felt in your community 
they can see a beautiful part getting cleaned up or put back together again. Mm, mm-hmm. They can they can they can see a, a better school getting renovated so it has safe water and it's prettier inside for the kids. I mean, what what whatever the it is, you know, the the old church down the street that's been abandoned getting turned into a roller uh, rink. Yeah, for, for some <laughs> community center. Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean so, so those those are the things that you know are tangible to people, and 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 just makes them go, wow, we can come together and get something done. But um, but the 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 attack on free speech is just it's gotten completely out of control. And then not only that, but the constant spying. Mm, I say mm-hmm. words all the time, and then I I'm just talking to another human being. I'm not even on my phone. And then I get an ad for it, like the Ugh. next time I touch my phone, like that's extremely creepy. So, like, and yet it's this, being normalized now. It's it's totally it's actually less and less creepy, weirdly. But it's disgusting. We just <laughs> laugh about it. We just laugh. Yeah. So, so I mean, so when it comes to that, aside from just the constant lying and propaganda and censorship them the idea that they should be allowed what we are openly able to discuss that's just preposterous and then and, and then secondly um we are creating all of their money they're getting paid from us they're not paying us for all this algorithmic information that they're turning over to the NSA and CIA and the tech firms like they're using this to keep selling us cheap Chinese crap and food 24 hours a day. And no, I don't get a check in the mail from Google or Facebook or anybody. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, so it should be a lot easier to not provide them that information. Or we absolutely need to start demanding our dividend check, like the Alaskans get for the oil drilled up there. I want my check from Facebook and Google and everybody else spying on me so they can right. sell me my next Tesla or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's why I think it should be uh, uh, public public domain, public utility yeah. with some kind of, oh, God, nonprofit board. Oh, my God, it's a nightmare already. <laughs> um, it, I, it was, its original intent was to be a wide open free space. All the information should be, it should be, it should be the commons. It was the commons for the world. And it was for a little bit. And not only that, it was invented by our military. We paid for it already. Yeah. Yeah. It's the same thing with the. All the profits to get privatized. I want to go back to what Ainsley was saying. The thing about the decent, because I want to, I think it needs more on the end of the decentralized revolution. The idea of, I think humans have to get physically together again, as well as using the, um, the the phone as their familiar instead of you know their their like slot machine that they're just sure. getting endorphins out of. Um, yeah, I think individual groups coming together will spawn new ideas instead of this sort of like memeified, it's like mummified, memeified version of my friends groups who only know how to think in terms of these binary memes. Now, there's no like original thought related to your specific place that then gets sure. people together where there's a sense of community. Like I think this pandemic's been really bad at like just really severing people from community. And a lot of people don't know how to get back to it. 
Um, well, and that gets into that gets into your work and your points on Verveke, right? Like mm. I, I do think it is very important to physically get together from time to time and break bread with each other because it is the human connection. It is e emotion. It is being moved spiritually. These things aren't robotic, right? Yeah, that's right. What, that's, that's what separates us from robots. So, I feel like that's so the downfall of this this technocratic idea is that there's, you know, without the heart, it, 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 I don't know how, how far they can go with it. Sorry to cut you yes. off. No, it's no, that's exactly right. And it's important that we actually share moments physically together because that is what builds the sinew necessary to continue the fight and conversations and going forward. There has to be a, some level of passion and commitment there at its core, or it's going to be like you said, everything's just going to continue to fizzle out. So um, friend of the show and guest from last week, uh, Evna Omni yeah. has shared a meme set with us oh. taken from uh, Twitter, awesome. Twitter user Sigrid Ellis. Okay. Um, so if you guys want like my breakdown of social media these days is like Facebook is a, is just a regurgitation machine. Very few people are creating original content on Facebook. A lot of people have a blog and they share that post on Facebook or they find a Twitter post and they share that post on Facebook or they find a YouTube video and they share that on Facebook, yeah, right. but you can find other platforms where people are creating content and and originating ideas and originating conversations. Mm. Um, so Sigrid Ellis, a uh, Twitter user, posted, I heard a thing on a podcast this weekend. This has a lot to do with what we're talking about right now, about decentralized revolution and what are some solutions. I heard a thing on a podcast this weekend how Americans are really good at acute compassion, but pretty bad at chronic empathy. We, without question, haul strangers out of a raging flood, give blood, give food, give shelter, but we're lousy at legislating safe, sustainable communities we're lousy at elder we're lousy at elder care we're lousy at accessible streets and buildings it's the long term work that makes the disasters less damaging but we don't want to give to the needy we want to save the endangered uh, and this is where i feel sigrid really gets to the heart of what's going on in the us these days especially yeah. with our young thriving superhero culture sigrid says we don't like being care workers we want to be heroes uh, the world does not need more heroes we need more care yeah that's right. I felt yeah, like that was like, yeah. he shared that like a half hour ago, but it's uh, so in line with what we're in, talking yeah. about right now. Uh, it's brilliant. I mean, there, there it is, right? And then, and then as the economic conditions continue to worsen and decline, it's just going to feed in more distress and fear. And, and, and we could end up caving to this Hunger Games hyper capital. Um, you know, we, in some of our big cities, um, the streets already smell like feces and urine and you're yeah. forced to like literally step over homeless people. I mean, stuff like that makes me want to cry. I mean, why, why we're, we're the richest society in human history. So, so there is a disconnect of the heart and, and, and it is uniquely American. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. 
this heroism I, I, thing. Yeah. I'm addicted to superhero oh, movies. Yeah. I get it. I, you know, when, sure. the, when the Kyle Rittenhouse thing was going down last year, um, I completely understood why that kid took a gun and took to the streets because I grew up with those kids. I was one of those kids. Sure. I had a pocket knife on my belt so that if yeah. at any given minute I could protect my siblings from a bad guy. Yeah. Like, I get it. Yeah, a lot a of people thing. see a kid with a gun and they think he must be a psychopath. But there's well, this. You taught me a lot about Rittenhouse as well. I like, had no I, idea. Him, him shooting that those people was completely justified. I mean, he, right. he honestly thought he he honestly thought he was going to be murdered. Yes. So that was clearly that was clearly self-defense. I'm glad the, the jury did the right thing in that case. Um, well, and, and in this case, I think we were really lucky because Kyle was actually being mentored and trained by a licensed and responsible gun owner who kept his guns in a safe at all times. They only took their guns out of the safe before the events because the the protests and the, the building burning was getting so close to their literal home in the neighborhood that they lived in. That's why they got the guns out of the safe. So they were preparing to defend their home in that instance. Yeah, and then. Sure. Yeah. Like Dark just showed me this TikTok video the other day of some guy who had a gun in his car and it was like his dash cam and he thought that somebody was shooting at him. So he started shooting and like he, he started having this like primal trauma response where he just kept shooting. Like he just From shot. From the inside of the like, car through his front windshield and his side windows. Like pew, 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 pew. And his face was just like, what? And then now we have this 17-year-old kid who's being chased down a street where sirens are blaring and buildings are on fire and shit is being thrown at him. And he only shoots one time. And then he doesn't keep shooting. He doesn't right. spray the gun into the crowd. Yeah, he's not playing superhero. No, or or so alarmed by a, by a... He was not alarmed by his weapon. He was handling his weapon very responsibly. Right. Like, I grew up in those... Anyway, that whole thing just blew my mind how much we'd been lied to about that story. Yeah, because I, I didn't want to pay attention to it until it started coming down to it. And I was like... God, I got to pay attention to this because this is, this is a whole... Like, then- it's one of those situations where there's a blatant... Easily exposed a series of lies as a narrative, sure. and then it yeah. is allowed to propagate. It's called out yeah. and never retracted, allowed to continue to live even after the falsehood has been proven. And then the the armies for that narrative, you can show them the stuff afterwards, and they still, it's like a betrayal to themselves to change their mind. And they just decide that Kyle Rittenhouse went out there to shoot black, and shot black people. Yeah, well, I know it's crazy, and and the and then the other thing about it is like, if it was six or nine months later, or whenever the kid's birthday is, I have no idea. And he was eighteen. Oh God! Totally okay. Six months later, for him to to go over to Afghanistan and start blowing people's right. brains out, and right. no one would say anything about it. So. Yep. Yep. But if he's he can go defend. Um, the the feeling he can defend the mythos of America mm. from yeah. bad guys in the their country, but he cannot right. he cannot defend his own belief about his family's mythos in his own. Yeah, trying to protect his own neighborhood. He can't <laughs> pr- he can't protect his own neighborhood, but he could go protect right. the amorphous vision of the country by yeah. going to someone else's house and shooting them. Oh jeez. Oh my god. <laughs> so. <laughs> <There it is. laughs> Oh God! Uh, I'm gonna jump ships. Um, Josh, Joshua Michael has a he's he's still on this protest thing. Okay, he feels 
very strongly. Um, Thomas Jefferson, this is what Joshua Michael said. Thomas Jefferson gave us the answer. It's just not pretty for what do we do? Right. Um, this is his perspective. They're never going to lay down and say, okay, you win. We have to take it back physically by force. The wealthy and elite have stolen our heritage and our inheritance. And then he gives a long breakdown of what he feels like we should do. I understand what you're saying. However, regardless of the industry, the means of warfare is still the same. For millennia, mankind has been fighting for its freedom. The powers that be are not human. We talk about this a lot. Like, the people that make it to the obscene oligarchical level yeah. um, are, are often sociopathic. And they don't have the empathy that we have down here. I don't know if that's what Joshua means in this quote, but I do know that that when someone gets up to this obscene level of control over numbers and the planet, they're often, they're not, it's not like your neighbor at the grocery store trying to have a successful home business. Or the reptilians that have come from outer space and are trying to be human. He might potentially be saying that also. The powers of be are not human. Governments are just a mechanism of control. The banks, for example, are fearful of cryptocurrency because decentralization is the key. Now hold your fire there, Mark. The powers that be, (laughs) the powers that be will never lay down willingly. This is why war is always the outcome. It is because the powers that be will always throw temper tantrums. I think that's very interesting that is a perspective and my response to him in the chat comments was like perhaps is it possible perhaps that a solution handed down pre-industrial revolution that we need to take our literal guns to our literal streets and storm our literal capital Mm -hmm. that a solution handed down pre-industrial revolution and pre-techno informational revolution Mm. is not going to slay the dragons of today Mm. this is part of what we were talking about at the bar like that we we're using weapons that slayed the dragon six chapters ago, but it might not slay this new dragon. We might need to upgrade. Yeah. And, and and to Joshua's point specifically, and I completely 100% agree with his sentiment, but also, um, you know, during the Thomas Paine and Jeffersonian days, we didn't have the largest military in the world. And, and, and we weren't constantly spied on. So, so the reason that, um, you know, to, to overthrow the tyrants, if you will, there is not a gun, enough guns in the United States no. to stop the hell that would be wrought upon us by literal uh, tanks and Apache helicopters. Our and, police departments I mean, have tanks, and we yeah. think that us yeah. having assault rifles is going to make a difference. Well, I, I think and, I – yeah, go ahead. It's not going to happen. I, I mean, it's just we we will get murdered at a massive level. If we were not, to take I that approach. I think there's a way yeah. to blend your perspective, your perspective, and Joshua's perspective together. I think. Um, uh, and it's where I lost my thought a minute ago. Go. In response to your decentralized, uh, decentralized revolution idea. So um, it's it's an idea I got from Chris Hedges, which is the idea of the parallel institution. So rather than protesting the other institution, you say you are now irrelevant because you have failed and we are now doing this over here. This is what Joe Rogan is to CNN. You fight the dragon by ignoring it and then they get mad. Yeah. You you just ignore them and say, you know what? I'm just going to have some conversations with my friends and smoke pot. And then suddenly you are more popular than all the news channels. That's a parallel institution that grew out of necessity. And so I think- Rather yeah. than shaking the fist at the all-powerful government, all powerful government, we have to look at them for the corrupted, diseased, uh, 
failed systems that they are and stop fighting them and say, we have new ideas, new technology. We can do some new shit. You guys Mm -hmm. just continue with your bullshit in Washington. We're going to make you irrelevant and do something else. Now, uh, Joshua brings up, he says, I think Mark doesn't understand that police and military will side with us, I Mm. believe, which I thought was interesting. Mark brought that up very early on. I mean, that's that's why I said we have to convince them to be on our side. Yeah. If, if they look if they look at us, if we can get them to see us as countrymen and on their side because they are our brothers and sisters and they're supposed to live within our communities. Um, I, I agree with that. That would be the hope. And 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 if you can get the police and military to side with you, the government has no recourse. Right. But to step aside right the velvet revolution was a student revolution that just because the system became russia fell czechoslovakia was like we don't have backup so i guess yeah we're done they just walked in and said nope let's go let's scrap this find some smart people design a new country Mm -hmm. and i think i i think the american in me really wants a a Independence Day, aliens blow up everything, and then we start afresh. Yeah, I clean kind and of, easy. I kind of You want still the heroism have, route. I do. I still want the <laughs> fetish of, like, the big destruction yeah. and everything. But to me, it Where seems like... Where are knocking when you need them? It just seems like the thing to do, actually, like, the most, the easiest thing to do and the sanest thing to do would be uh, a Congress of folks that agree that this is... Uh, we're being gaslit, and it's and we have to stop being gaslit that they are in charge, they are in control. We we can't fight them. Whatever the narratives are, we have to sort of wake up from whatever the gaslighting is and say, no, these are some these are some <laughs> these folks have issues, and they need to yeah. be taken care of. They need to be given some care and some sure. health, mental health. Like, are you talking yeah. about the oligarchs? I'm talking no. I'm talking about the tools of the oligarchs, which is our Congress, our Senate, oh. uh, everybody in our fucking institutions of healthcare, uh, all sure. that. Like those folks are sick, and I think some of them may be sociopaths, which means they're not sick. They're just exploiting. And then people who are not sociopaths have to be able to find a way to relegate those people to non-dangerous segments of society, not yeah. becoming a trillionaire as a thing to do. Like this is the problem with sociopathy. There's mm. no. You're separate from nature. You're separate from others. And I think we have to be able to relegate that fetish to some place that's not as harmful as where it is right now, being exalted as the rulers of the world and so on. This plays into what um, <laughs> this plays into what Deb asked a little while ago. She yeah. says, at this point in American and global history, what do we do to move forward? You know, we've got people like Joshua that are like, well, we need to burn this bitch to the ground. Right. And he was in the (laughs) military. He was in the military. And he said, that's what they were talking about in the military was like, how do we burn this bitch to the ground? Right. You know, and then we've got like other me where I'm kind of like, no, let's just take care of the animals in our local animal shelter. (laughs) Somewhere in between (laughs) is probably something we can like, what can we do? Right. I mean, but that's, but that's a beautiful thing about what Deb said. Right. I, I think this, I think this glorification of the myth of human progress is important to deal with. I'm not quite sure there is any such thing as moving forward. I think we just have to do and try no matter what. We let it get so bad, I'm not sure it could be wound down or unspun. We really don't know how this is going to go. If Silicon Valley has their way, we are literally going to get censored into having social scores 
Oh yeah. And they can and they can freeze your money if you're a naughty little boy. They can freeze your and, text messages. Yeah, exactly. So I I don't know if there's any such thing as moving forward. I think I think all we can do is not look at this in a childish, naive, and immature way. Continue to talk to each other, mm. and then when a light bulb goes off and someone does have a really good idea, glorify it as much as you can. Uh, start a co-op, gain the financing for it as fast as you can. So I hear about all these neat little things like um, a, a, a trailer park that had a lot of neighbors that liked each other. It was about to be bought out by one of these mega corporations and they were going to be a bad, a bad landlord. What, what the people in the trailer park did instead was start a real estate cooperative in which they were all equal share owners. Everybody turned in their information to the bank, how much they had paying, how long they lived there. It was decided to be such a sound investment by a local credit union. Everybody in that trailer park now owns a piece of their own trailer park. Oh, so cool. their, their, their rent actually went down. The place was kept mm. much cleaner because the residents started paying each other to assist in the grounds maintenance. They put up more parks for the kids. Like it was turned into a much more robust, uh, beautiful of a community with more longevity. So you hear about these interesting little things popping up uh, because they're putting us under so much strength. So I think it's those kind of things that, you know, we can come together around and kind of figure out and toy with and, and sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't. I mean, people act like we switched to capitalism from feudalism because everybody just got pissed off one day and was like, damn this feudal lord, fuck you. And yeah. it, it wasn't like that. It was like, it, it was like a 400-year period of urbanization and what that looked like and mm. uh, how, how are we going to grow veggies if all these tricks just take off. Like, it was, it was messy. It took a little while. Yeah, still taking a little while. I want to make a chart. <laughs> I want to put a chart back here or somewhere on post-orthodoxy, maybe a ticker at the bottom of the screen where we can have like um, um, the revolution is imminent, giant, centralized, violent, loud people in the streets, maybe zombies, maybe aliens. Right. And then at the other end, at the other end, um, you know, total governmental collapse and rebuilding. Right, right. And then the other end is like more closer to my perspective, which is like long-term palliative care during the long, slow decline of everything as we know it. <laughs> and then just slowly plot yeah. all of our guests at uh, where they stand between oh, yeah. explosive destruction and rebuild of everything. They can pin themselves on the map. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Deb loves your trailer park story, Mark. I think that is definitely decentralizing the revolution. And she said, moving forward one trailer park at a time. Hey, there, uh, yeah. I mean, we, we have a housing crisis, right? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do more cooperatives. Yeah, Deb, ask a question. Double wide are pretty fancy. That's right. No, I lived in a double wide for a while. It was like the largest house we lived in for a very long time. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, on a serious note, I'm really into uh, helping with homelessness in any meaningful way. Mm. So whenever I get a chance, I'm really into water neutral, carbon neutral, tiny houses mm. and, and, and other buildings and things of that nature. But, yeah, I mean, if you if you address the needs of real people, I think people will be shocked at how fast that 
snowballs into empathy and love and passion and change. People want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They want to be paid well. Yeah. No one just wants to drive a truck all day or flip burgers or whatever. It's a necessary thing. And I'm in no way whatsoever condescending to anyone what they do to take care of their family for a living. But I'm just saying Americans do work very, very hard. We literally work ourselves to death. I think people would enjoy it more if they felt good about what they were doing. Mm. Yeah. If we were to take an analogy from nature, which I find the more that I step away from the extremely unnatural form of Christianity that I was raised with, the more that I Mm. see the healthiest parallels and the healthiest thought styles are reflected in the natural world. The ocean waves don't, don't come to being on the surface of the ocean. The ocean wave begins far out from shore and deep underneath the surface with a current. And as that current builds and ripples and tumbles over itself, eventually it becomes the wave that we see crashing onto the shore. Mm. But the wave itself starts far out to sea and deep underneath the surface. And I think it's these things like carbon neutral tiny houses and trailer Mm. park cooperatives and taking care of the the um, homeless children and the homeless animals in your town that creates, if you feel happier and healthier, you will be a better person in your neighborhood. And then the entire neighborhood will elevate and the neighborhoods will start having resources to elevate each other. And then the wave crashes on the shore and the oligarchs become obsolete. Yeah. Well, that that is so beautiful. And, And to take that a little bit further, look at how we're allocating current resources. Some of our most brilliant, talented people are like corporate lawyers that are writing really shitty laws that make everyone's lives work worse. Mm. Uh, we have a ton of engineers that are designing and architects that are designing and building buildings uh, for tax havens for rich people. The fanciest new neighborhood, uh, Hudson Downs or whatever, in New York. It's a ghost town. It's empty because it's just all Russian and Chinese and oligarch money. No one lives there. Right. So it's it's like we're literally about to have wars over sand because of how much concrete we're using. We're running we're running out of the type of sand that's needed for concrete. So number one, we're using too much concrete. And secondly, why the hell are we putting up these luxury towers that no one lives in when we have homeless people everywhere? I mean, it's, yeah. it's insane. We have so, tons so of buildings in Butte that we could turn into homes for homeless people because they're just yeah. completely empty, but no one wants to spend... Re- it's uh, Yeah, I think your idea of the decentralized revolution has been my experience of being sort of at the beginning of the starts of communities. People coming together for work parties, like on a farm. Sure, yeah. Forms exactly. community. Yeah. A, a bunch yeah. of shoulders go into the same effort, and then you get to feel like you made a big transformation. You were a part of a transformation. That feeling is really infectious. And yeah, I, I, everybody get together and paint an old lady or her person's house, and then have dinner after. You mm-hmm. know, like it's just just little things. Sure. Fuck. So. Um, yeah. We've got thir- fifteen minutes left. Okay. Uh, John Ivankovich gave us a long comment kind of talking about all the various things we're talking about here. Uh, um, John Ivankovich is a longtime friend slash frenemy of the show. And he <laughs> he was part of our 
conversations with Mokai Malope way back when we were doing right. copacetic conversations. Um, and this is John's comment. He says, it always starts with racism. This is his perspective on what we've been talking about. And I wonder what your guys' perspective on what he says. He says, it always starts with racism. The fact is we have to deal with that because there are people in this world who hate based on race and race sells to the media. Dark and myself talked for over an hour with Mo Kai about race in our first meeting. It's just how it is. Rittenhouse dealt with it, Trump dealt with it, and Dark Money dealt with it. Winky face. That's his um anyway, handle. Yeah. His his political handle. Now Rogan is dealing with it in his time. It's fine. If you care about all people, you accept this is part of the interview of our quest to become better. The reality is that at some point we have to move on from the racial motivation. Thoughts? Uh, I mean, me personally, um, all you have to do is listen to the three evils of society from Martin Luther King. Mm. And it becomes blatantly obvious that we're still continuing. Um, the, the idea is so preposterous to me that in 2022, any of us would accept being divided in this way. So mm. I think anybody that uses dog whistle politics, like we, we agree that racism is a thing, but it, it, it gets glorified and pumped out there with a megaphone. It's pimped out as a f- source of division. Oh, almost yeah. ironically, ironically, yes. and almost, almost more often than there's actual restitution, education, compassion, and healing around it. Yes, exactly. So I, I think I think we all just need to be more mature about those conversations and realize that some people have been hurt by it. Um, I mean, not long after 9-11, I, I got a little bit too tan and my beard was a little bit too big. I've been kicked off of two airplanes and accosted at a bar because people thought I was an Arab, even though I'm an Irish a Mexican from Detroit. So, but- <laughs> So, I mean, it, it, so I agree with John is that it is a thing used as a cudgel and bludgeon to stunt what the real deal is, which is politics as a whole based around economic rights. We have to get, and this is what Martin Luther King, everybody likes to glorify his race stuff and they stay away from the, the class. like it's the black pain plague what he was actually trying to do at the end of his career was a class politics that's why he died yeah <laughs> that's, that's why he died that's yes. why we don't have bernie instead we have a pandemic yeah <laughs> well the kennedys, the kennedys were both also murdered i mean right you know whether it was same the topics Red Scare, yes yeah. so i mean you know, the, the idea that truth tellers don't get murdered in this country when the government finds them to be dangerous is just not connected to history or reality. Um, Deb asked a question at the beginning of the show, but we got we started going down the road, mm. which was directed to our guest. Here oh, yeah. Asking, wow. Wait a long time. What what is what was the phrasing? What was your Mark? What is your passion? Yeah. What's your what's your passion? What comes to mind when somebody asks you that question? Um, well, it immediately jumps to, um, I grew up in a blown out ghetto in Southwest Detroit. My passion is to take every opportunity that I can, even though I have no children of my own, it might sound cheesy to some people, 
but children are the future and are very, very important to me. So I spend my life building as many beautiful spaces that I can and putting hip restaurants in them sometimes to, to try and alleviate any pain and suffering that vulnerable children like myself, that they have an outlet, a learning center, a place to feel safe, a place to eat really good food. I don't think any children in the richest country in human history should have to be put through the level of suffering that they're being put through right now. Mm. I find it unconscionable and I find it disgusting and I will spend my life trying to eradicate that the best that I can. This is why we're friends. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think that's cheesy at all, Mark. I think it really does just keep coming down to the children. Anytime something important is being talked about. I wake up every day of my life more excited than ever to, to get back at it. Yeah. It's nice to have that. And feel like you're really doing something that makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, maybe um, I'll throw this out here. Maybe you can help me workshop. Cause I used to have the kids co-hosted talk radio show on KBMF. Um, yeah. And then when sure K- they miss it. I, the the kids miss it. I had um, a kid tell me that they were going to do DJ training. This is sort of a happy, sad story, but they were going to do DJ training at KBMF last year because they'd gotten old enough since doing my show to actually have their own show. And when they found out through social media that KBMF had censored and kicked us off the air, he decided not to do it. And I'm like, that like is so gratifying and also so sucks Yeah, because he should be able to get on the air and his community should be yeah. hearing him. And it's this small town bullshit that just keep perpetuating. I would like to find a new home for kids to have self-expression mm. to their community that they don't already have. Me doing a live stream with a kid on social media is not something that they don't already have access to. Um, the long form conversations with children in an adult space, the, the radio, radio station. station was a space for adult voice voices and I brought children into it and their community got to listen to them, had to listen to them, you know, and hear what they were thinking about and what they were spending their Christmas money on and what they were afraid of and what they were angry about. Um, so if you can think of, I mean, you're kind of, you're hip, you're staying with the times, you're focused on the children, you're talking with them, you're in the scene over time. If you have any ideas, I mean, I've considered shopping out the show to another local radio station. Um, but I don't know if I have the time to commit to bringing a kid in every week to a commercial, to a commercial slot. Um, but I would like to find a way to continue to build youth led media and youth led conversation to facilitate. I want to facilitate what they need to do for themselves. Yeah, it will, and it and it could be it could be something as simple as um, your young DJ friend uh, bringing on using like an apprenticeship or a mentor program. So your young DJ friend uh, brings on uh, someone that's successful um, or, or, mm-hmm. or doing something cool that kids would be interested in that's still a teenager or in their twenties. And then interviewing and talking with another kid. I mean, maybe just completely give it to the kid right. and let them. So it, you know, just give them some kind of framework and and just kind of let them let it fly and see how it goes. But no, that's yeah, we yeah, it has to be done. That's it's it's a positive thing for the kids that should definitely get sorted out as quickly as possible. I like that idea. 
The it's, it's literally their voice being amplified. And I know yeah. I, I started radio when I was 16. So I think it was, yeah. it did something magical to know that my voice at regular tone was being heard all over town. <laughs> it did something yeah. to me. And I think when you know that you can't have your voice heard, even in such a, like, uh, you know, um, a literal way right it has other repercussions a primal effect no yeah. it was so much fun for yeah. the kids that came on the show on the jolly roger and that were old enough to have cell phones and they they had like coerced friends to listen in and like one girl was like my friend was like what even is radio anyway um <laughs> but you know they like no you can listen to it on your phone you got to tune in because i'm going to do a show and then they would send in song requests so they knew someone was listening to them right now and then what they were saying right now mattered because that person was like, I love that song you just played. Can you play this one? And it was also going to disappear into the ether and not be, you don't go replay what just happened, which is right. a magic part of the radio thing. Well, I think, I, th I think also that we could also, we could all use the opinions of kids over octogenarians. Uh, oh. Yeah. You know, that have, that have spent the last 40 years completely mucking up this country and society and, and like, hey, come on! Like, can't you just go play golf and be quiet for a little while? Like, <laughs> just retire. <laughs> oh gosh, we have six minutes left. What do you guys want to talk about in the the very tail end of our beautiful conversation today? Do you have anything that we started that you want to go back to to wrap up, or something that didn't I come up? Wanna, I just want to make it very clear that none. Our, our lives are literally controlled by economics right now and how it's constructed. It wasn't a system that was put in place. We didn't get tablets like Moses on a mountain somewhere. <laughs> like there was no lightning bolt that came down and made things this way. So, so for people, I mean, everyone can know who the Mon Pelerin Society is. The who? Everyone can know the Mon Pelerin Society, so Hayek and von Mises. So our current economic order is constructed by the monetary theosophists that were the next generation of work from the Adam Smith mm -hmm. and the previous industrialists. All of this has been done by a very specific group of people for a very specific group of people. None of this stuff has to be a mystery. So I know it isn't the sexiest, most exciting thing to talk about all the time, but it's what is taking over the judiciary. It is what has corrupted all of our politicians and turned the whole system into a joke and a sham. It is literally what is causing suffering on a massive scale, while the top 20 or 30 percent of people are laughing all the way to the bank. And Americans aren't jealous people. No one begrudges anyone that gets wealthy in this country, especially if the activity was through their own hard work and it was productive. But that's not currently the case right now. Yeah, it's not the case. I feel like this is probably the first like the most saturated show with solutions, like the show that was yeah. most saturated with trying to have a forward thinking or at least present thinking perspective on what can we fucking do? Well, I think what he's talking about with, a, with, with getting into the roots, what you were talking about there, when I was coming into 
the awareness of how things go. It was pre-internet, 1990s Los Angeles, going to the weird guy's trailer that had the videotape that was made that I went home and then I studied and about banking yeah. system. And, and then when you got into the literature, it started really crossing with like uh, reptiles and mystic societies and so on and so forth. And so it, it, it was always relegated to the land of conspiracy theory. And now that we have, cause the only people that would deal with the topic of power and how it works were people who didn't have anything to lose uh, because if it was on a large platform, it wouldn't get out. So it was you always in Rogan. right, yeah. right, exactly. It would be on some obscure platform, and so sure. you know now that the internet, like all the secrets from the Masons, are online. You can go Google the rituals, whatever. All the stuff is out there. Yeah, no longer secret society. It's no longer secret <laughs> society, and so they're no longer operating in secret. You know, the World Economic Forum, which we didn't even touch on on the show. Oh, jeez. Davos that right. that whole scene is is um you know top down culture prescriptive I think I kind of feel like we should just steal their playbook cuz I like a lot of the stuff that Make they're talking sequ- about like we we talked a little bit in the first season about like starting our own church they have yeah they have some really good stuff in in like the fourth industrial revolution plan there's some really mm-hmm. cool shit in there and it's like yeah. if you put the right music to it and have a lady in yoga pants talking to you about it, it's awesome. It's just about <laughs> taking, taking. Two thumbs up. Teaches from yoga pants. But yeah. Totally. Yes. But then taking out of that, like the World Economic Forum is proposing a Star Trek level civilization, except the oligarchs yeah. are still in control. That's yeah. the well, that's the they, one part it, that we got to tinker with, and then I think their playbook is good in a lot of ways. Sure, yeah. Well, and the sick thing is about those idiots is they literally <laughs> want us to be happy about them screwing us over. Yeah, they're, they're doing it, not, and they they did. Yeah, they're doing it. <laughs> so I mean, a, a, a non geared artist does really good work um, I, I, on that, it, it, exposing the group think that goes on, like. The show is about getting out of cult thinking, right? Right. And they are the 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 twenty eight hundred richest people. Everybody that gets to hang out at Davos, they are a cult. They do believe in an ideology. They they literally do think they're superhuman. Even though if you go back in history, you know, in the United States, we like to make fun of welfare queens. We vilify poor people all the time mm. and blame them for so much stuff. So, but the laziest people on the planet Earth has always been the leisure class. Mm. The last time we had a beautiful renaissance and created some of the greatest art and music and architecture in human history, it wasn't those idiots that did it. They were just paying for it. Like they really are moronic, worthless people. And we are (laughs) surrounded by the fruits of their lack of labor on a daily basis. Right. So why why are we glorifying for money's for money's sake? It should absolutely matter, especially since we live in a country that pretends to be a meritocracy. What is meritocratic <laughs> about that? Like it should matter what you're actually doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that idea. Yes. yes. I second that motion. Uh we have to wrap up today's show. I yeah. mean have to is 
you know, kind of arbitrary at this point. We have a secret question to ask you after the show, so stick around. But um, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate Uh, you. Thank you to everybody that tuned in. Um, We'll see you guys next week. Maybe aliens, maybe the Holocaust. We're not sure yet. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe both. Maybe both. Thank you for visiting our Outpost in the Borderlands. Post-Orthodoxy is a project of Sevier Studios. We host ongoing, interactive conversations centered around cognitive liberty, and you can join in by catching one of our live streams on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch. You can also catch each conversation after the fact as a podcast by searching for Post-Orthodoxy wherever podcasts are found. If you take value from the work we are doing and the community we are building together, you can support the Outpost in the Borderlands for as little as $5 a month on our website, BetterTime. That's betterti.me. Visit the Sevier Studios page and subscribe. You can also support The Outpost by following and connecting with us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, and or Substack. Our post-Orthodoxy theme music was composed by Frank Pascal, and a special thanks goes to our voice actors, Amelia, Colin, Zbo, Rosie, Gabo, Vicky, Mokai, and Tony. Thanks for playing. (laughs) What's outside your reality bubble? I think I dribbled a bit, that last one.